You notice we're picking up tonight in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8, which means we did jump over one thing. We jumped over Noah, which will be next week. We're going to back up and do Noah next week. So tonight, Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. You can read along with me on your handout there. The scripture says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out of the place that was to receive as he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man as him and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as, and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So, that's a mouthful of Scripture, especially in the book of Hebrews. When you take a chunk that big, ooh, there's a lot there. But we have to just pull it apart and see how all of this fits together. First of all, this section of the book of Hebrews is to teach us that salvation has always been only by faith. So remember the context now. You have people hearing this from a Jewish heritage and a Jewish context who are now embracing or considering embracing this revolution of Jesus, the Messiah which is against everything that they've been raised to believe. And their family's freaking out. Their friends are freaking out. There's persecution breaking out everywhere. And it's very costly and very real and very scary. And so all of this is the consideration that's going on. And what do you think uh, one of the chief sort of uh, knocks against Christianity they were hearing? was that they were believing in some newfangled religion. They were believing in some, some new, brand new, you know, weird thing. And so Hebrews is coming along to say, this isn't new. It's nothing new at all. And that's why the book of Hebrews is so filled with um, Old Testament illustrations because of the context in which it's being spoken. So the writer wants everyone to know that this isn't something new at all. And so what would be the best way to do that? Well, to talk about Abraham would be the best way to do that. Now, we need to understand because sometimes we maybe don't say this outright, but we, if we're not careful, the way we speak about the Old Covenant we could mislead people into believing that, you know, maybe there was at one time different ways to be saved. That people in the old covenant got saved differently than people in the new covenant. And we want to clarify that there's never been two ways to be saved. There's only been one way. And it's always been by faith. And faith has always been the key. Furthermore, again, contrary to some of the things we often hear and maybe inadvertently insinuate, the Old Testament never taught salvation by works. Just because people were entrenched in a works theology, especially when Jesus comes on the scene, what he finds is a very religious people that are very entrenched in works, but that's not a reflection on the Old Testament. That's a reflection on what P 
people do when they're left untaught. We will always gravitate towards legalism. How many millions of times has that been said from this pulpit? Left to ourselves, we're going to gravitate to legalism or to liberality. Always. Always. And why do we gravitate towards legalism? Because we want to quantify, we want to control, we want to, we want to make religion something systematic so that we can go, oh, look, it's kind of like, you know, martial arts. Oh, look, I'm a red belt. Oh, I'm an orange belt. Oh, I'm a, that we, it's easier that way. We can look around and go, okay, I see where you are. I see where you are. Well, when are you testing for your next belt? That's how legalism is. And so it just becomes this competition. Well, people who are good at rule following, and there's always people in church that are good at rule following, are going to gravitate in this direction. Galatians 3, for example, says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, Paul says, or by hearing with faith? And then notice, Paul, again, uses the same tactic to straighten them out. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So when the Galatian church started drifting off into legalism, started drifting back into false belief, uh, embracing a different gospel, that's how Paul got them straight. Anybody else need a handout? Raise your hand. In the back row. There you go. Thank you. So, the progression of these people that we're looking at. I mean, I don't want to belabor you with uh, just meaningless details, but I think it's important for us to identify that we're not just haphazardly rolling along through a list of names. The Hebrews doesn't just happen to begin with Abel. It doesn't, we don't just happen to go from Abel to Enoch, from Enoch to Noah, and from Noah to Abraham. If you think about the progression of what these people represent and what we have before us, you can see that it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like an, an order of salvation. It's like an ordo salutis calling to us. We see Abel first, who is all about an offering, is all about... It's like a picture of justification. Enoch comes in second. Enoch walks with God, which is a picture of sanctification. Noah, the conversation we'll have next week, is about a person who, in sanctification, begins to operate in such a way that there's external, uh, externally visible manifestations of his sanctification. Right? And then we have Abraham. Abraham is the greatest example of faith in the Scripture. By far, more is said about Abraham and faith than anyone else. It's not just uh, contained from Genesis 12 to 25, where we have the primary information about Abraham, but it is all over the Scripture. Abraham is always the person the Scripture turns to when illustrating what saving and genuine faith is. But what's beautiful about Abraham is that he's not perfect. His life was a life of faith from the moment God called him to leave and go to a land that God would show him. See, it's very much like the conversation we had this morning about Esther and the fact that God chose to use somebody who was so imperfect and had so many flaws, and yet that's whom God chooses. And so there's no perfect people in the Scripture except for one, and that one, of course, would be the Lord Jesus. Look at what the Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 9. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. See, Abraham was a faithful follower of God. So we should sort of make a mental note in our head tonight that we know the difference between perfect and faithful. And that God's not calling you to be perfect because you can't be. But He is calling us to be faithful. 
And those are two very different things. That's not an excuse to be sloppy. Faithful is not sloppy, but faithful is not perfect. And there's a difference. So let's look at it. Let's, let's study together. Let's look at the beginning. Really, Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make for you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that your you will be a blessing. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. God's gonna make him great, a nation great, so that they can be a blessing. So you see how this covenants unfolding I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed so the original exchange between God and Abraham this is how this whole thing begins with this promise now here's a man who lives in Ur which is located along the Euphrates River. It would be southern Iraq today. Now this land where Abraham lived, we know a lot about the land in which Abraham comes from. They had an elaborate writing system. They had a, a very elaborate economic structure. There was all sorts of uh, we found tons of relics of all sorts of complex mathematical equations that they had figured out. They, not only that, were a very religious people. We know what the Bible says about Abraham and his people, but we've also found all sorts of things to validate what the Bible says. And most notably, Ur was deeply entrenched in worship to the moon god. Some of the uh, remnants that have been dug up from what is determined to be the royal cemetery where a lot of these uh, worship sessions would take place contain a large number of human remains, which is an indication of very dysfunctional, sadistic worship. Human sacrifice, to be exact. So Ur, this highly advanced place, was nevertheless in the bonds of dark paganism. And Abraham was an idolater. And part of the social and religious structure of his culture. Again, I don't want to just, you know, belabor the point. But you see the correlation to Esther. The Bible tells us... I, this isn't just, we're just not surmising this. The Bible tells us clearly that Abraham was engaged in the things of his land. Joshua 24, verse 2. I think I put that in your handout. I'll read it to you. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. They were idolaters. It wasn't like there was an idolatrous people and Abraham was this one person who was set apart, who was better than everybody else, who was, you know, uh, abstaining from all the things around him and God chose that wonderful guy. No. God plucked Abraham right out of a cesspool of people. Just like he plucked me and just like he plucked you. That'll build your confidence, won't it? Amen. So this is what makes Abraham such a wonderful role model for us today. I don't know about you, but I've heard enough of the Hamans of the world touting all their wonderful achievements and perfection and everything else. That's zero help. What we need is reality. So look at verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out of the place. Hmm. 
He's called out to go to a place that, was to, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So let's talk about, beginning with verse 8, what is this passage going to show us that, that makes Abraham such a beautiful picture of faith that things that we need to know, that ways in which we can emulate and model and strive to be like Abraham in faith so that we can understand what true faith is. What, what does model faith look like? Believe me, it does not look like what you see every day. So first of all, faith obeys differently. It obeys differently. It has a different definition of obedience than what you would normally encounter. And by I mean by normally, I'm talking about within the realm of professing Christianity. Now, there are two things that characterize or symbolize Abraham's life. A tent and an altar. Everywhere he goes, those two things appear. He always has those two things in close proximity to himself. He's continually on the move. He's continually uh, receiving word from God that he then turns and obeys. And along the way, he's continually in a state of worship. You will see a correlation between uh, Abraham's worship and David's worship through their ups and downs. They both have very sort of spectacular failures. But there's a continuance of their worship, even through their failures. So faith and obedience are inseparable. Obviously, Abraham would never have obeyed God's call had he not truly taken God at his word. Now, understand something. Abraham is not a picture of faith. It was not counted unto Abraham as righteousness because he got up and went and followed God. That's not how that happened, and you need to definitely understand that. That's the second thing that happened. The first thing that happened was God spoke, and Abraham believed that, and then he left and went. He didn't just... Hear it and go. And there's a big difference. Because people who don't make that distinction, then they see faith as an end. You understand what I'm saying? If Abraham heard God and just went, then his faith is only in going. And so once he went, that was it. And so he's on to the next thing. Right? That's wrong. Abraham believed God. Therefore, he faithfully responded to what God said. So in going, he is just acting in the faith that he has. And his life from that moment until the moment he takes his last breath is a journey of, is a continuous progression of faith. You see, the moment that you become a Christian is not this faith moment, and then you move to something else. The moment you become a Christian inaugurates you into the journey of faith. That is a very important distinction. Very important. So Abraham's obedience was an outward evidence of an inward faith. If you think about what you do when somebody asks you to do something, how do you determine whether or not you're going to do it? Is it based on what the person says or is it based on who's the person saying it? Mm. Well, I can tell you this. If it's something very difficult, if it's something highly risky, it is going to be 100% based on the person who's saying it, right? Yes. And so there's no difference. It's an outward evidence. It drives me crazy when I hear people talking about Abraham and the fact that, well, you know, that his faith was that he went. No, his faith was that he believed God, and that's what 
caused them to go. So Abraham goes. He doesn't know where he's going. Doesn't know. God didn't explain to him, well, Abraham, let me explain this to you. Now, when you get there, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be amazing. Let me show you a, a picture of what it's going to look like. Look at the swimming pool there. It's really, you know, you see the big fountain rushing down. And look at how great it's going to be. And no, there wasn't any. Mm-mm. It wasn't this, well, I, let me pray about it. That's interesting. How many times today do you hear somebody use the term, well, let me pray about it? which is normally a a spiritual thing to say and do, except for that's the wrong response if God's speaking. Huh? Yeah. Now, if somebody's asking you to, you know, if there's something that you're unclear about, you're unsure about, but if the Bible says, thus says the Lord, you don't pray. You obey that. God spoke, right? We got a big problem with all this, you know, hesitation. Let's, well, I'm not sure. I'm not, well, the Bible says this. And if it says this, you know what you ought to do? You ought to do it. That's what you ought to do. What are we standing around for? What are we waiting for? Move. There's no risk analysis. He just does it. Because he believes God. He believes what God says. Leaving everything that was familiar and everything he knows. Everything. Every single thing. We have no reason to believe that Abraham had ever experienced anything outside the immediate vicinity of where he had spent his life. It's not like there was a highly advanced railway system and people were traveling all over the world with no knowledge of where he was headed. So there he goes. Now again, think of the... It's not just the fact that it's unknown, which is the part we can somewhat relate to. What about the danger of the place he's going. Think about the think about how dangerous the world was at this time. And think about how dangerous it would have been to just roam about the earth and to just roam up upon different groups of people. Not not a, a good idea. He follows God as a total act of trust. So there he goes. Contrast this with our current culture's insatiable appetite for control and security. Insatiable. We're obsessed with pseudo-control and pseudo-security. Obsessed. We try to mitigate our lives against every conceivable threat to our comfort. Everything. We ensure everything. We plan for everything. We have, and it's all built around what? Us. Isn't it interesting? No one's ensuring and planning They're missionary endeavors. It's all just to make sure that my little kingdom and my little palace stays intact. The fact that something's risky in no way, shape, or form indicates that it's not God who is suggesting it. In fact, I would say that it would lean more towards the fact that it's the Lord. And the reason for that is because the flesh 
is not going to encourage you to do anything risky for the glory of God, is it? No, it's not. I haven't been saved long enough to have forgotten how excellent the flesh is at focusing upon itself. Consider when we get to Hebrews 13. In Hebrews 13, verse 13, listen to what the Bible says. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, to the exile, to the foreigner. Let's leave the safety and security and go outside the camp and bear the reproach of the alien that's outside the camp. And here's what verse 14 says. For here we have no continuing city, but seek the one to come. I can't wait for that week. That means, why wouldn't we risk everything? We're not, this isn't our home. We're not living for this. Our, our reward is stored up in heaven, which is secure in the Lord. And so, therefore, we can bear the reproach of the alien because we don't have a continuing city. We're seeking the one to come. Man, I'd stay home on that night. I'm going to go crazy when I get to that verse. Abraham exhibits preferring the word of God to everything and loving it above everything. That's what he's showing. What does he have to hang all of it, what he's doing, it, the Word of God, that's what he had. Does he have a track record? Nope. What does Abraham see when he looks in the rearview mirror? Nothing. He's got the Word of God. Boy, what I wouldn't do to live in a world where people would simply move based on only the Word of God. Mm. No, no, we need the Word of God. Then we need time to think about it. Then we got to be prodded about it. Then somebody's got to yell and scream until all the veins in his neck explode. Over and around and around and around we go. All he, he hears the Word of God, boom. God said it. I'm doing it. There's a novel approach to life. Faith, real faith, genuine faith. Now watch this. It spawns reflexive steps of obedience. We should not imagine that we have faith if we don't obey. So, I mean, I'm just going to lay it out there. You can just scratch faith off the list if you don't obey. If you don't obey, you don't have faith. Why would anyone believe they had faith if they don't obey? The way to quantify and calibrate faith is obedience. They're inseparable. It's so simple. And yet, so bewildering in our current culture. And so, how could something so crystal clear become so foggy? Well, is that really what God meant? I mean, how would that exactly work in, in my context? You see, I mean, you know, this isn't, the, I mean, I hear it all. What does the Bible say? And whatever it says... That's the end of the discussion. I'm done talking. Let's just do that. Can we just do that? That's faith. It is reflexive obedience. Have you not ever been reading the Bible and just read something and it's like you got hit by lightning? And then you just immediately know that's, you know, boom, that. Life's not going to be the same. It's changing. Something just happened. I just realized something I didn't know. And there I am. I mean, all those early days after my conversion that 
I was just discovering all these new things, and I'd be so excited to go home and tell Lisa about some, you know, oh, yeah, you know, and she just would smile, you know. And At the time, I mean, I thought I was just really something. You know, she was just too kind to say, you are really a moron, you know. Like, I, my dad's a pastor. I've, like, heard that all my life. But it was brand new to me. I didn't know. I was so excited. Just everything I'd read, boom, change this, boom, do that. Hey, it was awesome. So some questions. Are you truly obeying God's word? Because here's what happens. When you, you know what happens. You, you're, when you're rebelling against God's word, well, here's what, first of all, you're not going to read it. Second of all, you don't want to hear it. Because you already know you're not obeying it. Has he been calling you to a specific task or action, but you've been passively ignoring it? And if so, this would be my question. Well, what is your faith in? And the way to answer that question is this. When you know that God's calling you to do something and you're resistant to do it, what is it that you think about when you think about resisting it? And whatever that is, that's your God. Your faith is in that thing. Right? That's what it is. So if you're afraid to lose your 401k, that's your God. If you're afraid of what your family's going to think, that's your God. If you're afraid that you're going to lose whatever, that's your God. Whatever you, whatever's hindering you from obeying what God says is your functional God. And you can believe all you want to that you have faith, but you do not have faith if you do not obey. It was counted unto Abraham as righteousness because he obeyed God, which was a reflexive response to believing the word that God said. That's it. Plain and simple. Isaiah 51. The Bible says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Listen. Listen. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. And to the quarry, the rock quarry that that you were dug from. Hmm. So you were hewn and you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, God says, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. Man, when I read that in Isaiah 51, I think God dug me out of a pit and he chiseled me out of a rock of paganism. That's what he did for Abraham. That's what he did for me. And if you're saved tonight, that's what he did for you. So faith obeys differently. Secondly, faith, it lives differently. Now, it doesn't live differently because it obeys differently. It, 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 the, these are in progression. I mean, it's not that you, you don't live different and then obey different. Obeying creates living. You live differently. Look at verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city, to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So here's what the Word of God wants us to know. Abraham's existence was one of dissonance. It just means he never fit in. He never looked like everyone else around him. He was always on the move in his tents and just moving. So a life of faith is not anti-cultural but counter-cultural you see this is this is how we need to understand how we live amongst people in a dark and fallen world we're to be in the world not of the world but that's wrong to think that means to separate that's not what that means in the world not of the world so we're not anti-cultural we're counter-cultural see Abraham lived separated from culture, he, was, he, he didn't live that way. He was involved, and yet he was never at home. He was in 
involved in what was going on, but it wasn't his home. He, he wasn't, he, all of his, his, this world was not what he was about. And we know this because it was Abraham's expectation of a permanent, perfect blessing in the heavenly city that enabled him to submit patiently to the inconvenience and the disappointments of his pilgrimage in Canaan. It wasn't an easy road, was it? God shows up and says, pack up your stuff and follow me. And it wasn't, hey, I'm going to make everything smooth for you. No, it was hard. It was one challenge after another. But the way Abraham was able to be patient through all of that is because he had an expectation of a greater final home. This is the reason that so many are dissatisfied in life is because they're looking for satisfaction in the wrong world. It doesn't exist here. And trying to find it here is never going to lead to anything but despair. And it doesn't matter how obvious it is. We still struggle to connect the dots. You see, we, we, it's so crazy that we live in a culture that continually chases after the same things, even though a million times over they've proven not to satisfy, right? So who are the most dysfunctional people in the United States of America? I'm talking about the, the, the cream of the crop, the super fruitcakes. The richest, most famous people in our nation are the most jacked up people that ever lived. Now why is that? Why are they so suicidal? Why are they strung out on drugs? How come they get married 17 times? Why? Because they can't they have all the money and all the fame and all the, and yet they can't find happiness and yet people just clamor in, right? As if the obvious is so obvious right in front but somehow, you know, standing in line at the supermarket and the big array of all the Idiots with all their money and all their stuff that can't seem to find happiness. And we all just look at that and go, oh, well, but if I had their money, oh, if I, if I, if I. There's no satisfaction. Faith lives differently. Number three, faith believes differently. Believes differently. The way faith believes is different than the way we normally think about belief. Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, doesn't that just prop you up? If you're, if you're a little bit old tonight, well, according to God, you're good as dead. Okay, just letting that out there. As good as dead. We're born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. So there's Abraham, 99 years old, and his bride, a ripe 90, when she became pregnant. Genesis 17. Romans chapter 4, verse 19 says, He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead, same phrase, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he, considering the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There it is. Romans 4, 19 to 21. Just as God's promise began to make intellectual sense, God then called Abraham to an even greater act of faithfulness. Right? So let's think about it for a second, what happened. So God tells Abraham that he's going to be the father of a nation and that they're going to be a people that greatly multiply across the face of the earth. Now, the first problem is, the most obvious problem is, I don't have an heir. That's a problem since I don't have a son. How's that going to happen? So then God says, well, you're going to have a son. 
And then, okay, tomorrow comes, the next day comes, the next day comes, and on and on and on it goes. And there's no sun, no sun, and you know all the nonsense that incurred with Ishmael and Hagar and all of that. And then finally, there's a sun. Now, the moment Isaac shows up on the scene, God's promise intellectually makes sense. I'm going to be a Uh, the father of a nation, now I have a son, now I understand, I finally got to the other side. My faith has finally got me to the place where everything makes sense. I'm on solid ground. I start raising my son to be the heir of the promise, and then God comes along when he's a teenager and says, take him up the mountain. Huh? Huh? What? Take him up the mountain. And when you get to the top, sacrificing. Now, here's my question. God promised Abraham that he'd be the father of a nation. He finally got a son that he, where he could intellectually wrap his head around how this was going to come true. And now God says to him, go up the mountain and sacrifice him. Now, here's the thing. Those two things are counter to one another. They cannot both exist. Either I have a son and I'm going to be the father of a great nation or I'm going to obey you and sacrifice my son. But the two things can't exist because they can't both happen. And yet up the mountain Abraham goes. Now how does Abraham go up the mountain when the two promises seem totally counter? There's no intellectual way to sort out how this could work. How does it happen? Well, if you just look down your Bible to verse 17, Hebrews eleven seventeen, 17, here's what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall be your offspring. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, He did receive him back. Now let me ask you a question. The Bible says that Abraham trusted God to such a degree that he had these two promises that were sort of these two acts of obedience that were going counter to each other. And he had to sort this out in his mind. And because he could not disbelieve God, the only conclusion he could come up with was that God was going to raise him from the dead. Had God ever raised anybody from the dead at this time? Had Abraham ever seen that, ever heard of that, ever read it in a book, ever heard a story about it? Had it ever happened? Not one time, not ever, zero, zilch. But he believed God to the degree that nothing's impossible for God. And the Bible tells us clearly that's what Abraham's motivation is when he's going up the mountain. And yet, I mean, just think of how that would look if, if people began to live that way today in this culture. It would be so beautiful and yet so mind-boggling. And they'd be surrounded by church-going people who'd be trying to talk them out of it every step of the way. Well, I don't think you ought to do that. I don't know. I mean, I could just hear it. I could just hear it. Oh, I wouldn't go to that. I wouldn't let, oh, I wouldn't go to that country. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Oh, I would I, Oh, I guess when God said go and make disciples, he was just suggesting that. I guess, I'm assuming. I don't just assume. So here's the principle. For the saved, faith is not a destination. It's a lifelong journey. It is a lifelong journey. So Abraham's journey, listen. So every time Abraham could intellectually make sense of what was going on, what happened? God spoke again, and here we go again, and here we go again, and here we go again. And you know what the American Christian is doing? Trying to just hurry up and get to the end of faith. Just hurry up and rush to the place where, oh, I understand. Oh, I got it. Oh, I. Let me tell you something. If you are to the place where you understand God and your faith isn't being pushed, you're either lost or dead. God doesn't work that way. It's not, a, it's not something that you get to the end of. We're not playing a board game. We're following the living God of the universe who is leading us on a journey of faith. 
It is a continual process of trusting, obeying, trusting, obeying. Day in, day out, over and over. You don't, you, there's no, you don't get to some plateau and just, you know, sit in a lazy boy and just rest. No. That's not what happens. About the time you think you got it figured out, he says, now go sacrifice him. I mean, just read it. And then when he came down, it was another command. And then another command. And then another command. Over and over it went. He weighed the human impossibility of becoming a father against the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word. And he decided that since God is God, nothing's impossible. Even though he'd never seen it, heard about it. I mean, there was no context for it. And yet he's like, well, he's God. It's easier for Abraham to believe in something he's never seen nor heard of than it is for him to conceive of God breaking his word. Wow. True faith is not at all void of understanding, but it must go beyond it has to go beyond. You see, the, with every step Abraham obeys, he, he then learns the character and nature of God. He gets to know God more. His faith deepens. He, he, he understands. The same thing with us as we grow. But here's the thing. There's no faith unless it exceeds our understanding. Otherwise, we're just walking in sight. Sight. What I find is that when I have this conversation with most people, they get frustrated with me. They get frustrated. You got some pouty looks on your face right now. I'm just letting you know that. I mean, you might think from your angle it looks okay, but from my angle it's kind of pouty. People get frustrated, man. They don't like. They don't like to be nudged along this journey. They want to figure things out. They want to be in control. They want to know. They want to. It does not work that way. All of our pathetic excuses for why we don't believe God are pathetic. All of them. Every one of them is pathetic. Every single time in my life I didn't believe and obey God, I regret it. I regret it. So faith obeys differently, it lives differently, it believes differently, and then finally it hopes differently. It, it, it is just completely different. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now, of all of this amazing, all these amazing lives we've looked at, and yet the Bible just matter-of-factly says, well, and by the way, these amazing people of faith, they didn't receive the things promised. They didn't. That didn't sway them. That, and here's the thing. If this was going to you know, cause us to derail, the Bible's not trying to derail you. The Bible's just trying to clue you in. Hey. They didn't receive these things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, uh-huh, with every step. Sometimes it's like I'm just, I'm sniffing. I'm on the trail, and I'm going, and God's showing me things, and I'm just sniffing along the trail. Sometimes I watch my silly dog out in the backyard, moving, tails up, and that nose is working, he's, he's on a trail or something, and I'm watching him, and I imagine that's, that's me chasing after God all the time, just sniffing. I'm moving, trying to find him. What, what are you telling me? What is, what's going on? And I, I just get just enough to just keep me going, keep me push, 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 because I want it so bad. It's so amazing. It's so wonderful. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 14. For people who they spake thus. What did they do? They were speaking. They were 
They were using their words to make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Hmm. They, this wasn't a secret. When you met them, you didn't wonder. You knew they were talking about the fact they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, well, they had an opportunity to return. See, if Abraham was just in hot pursuit of Ur, he could just went back. He'd just go back. That's a depressing thought. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Whew. All right, let's take a deep breath because this is a, a whopper. On what basis is God not ashamed to be called our God? Sure seems like he has every right to be. On what basis is that possible? Well, first of all, because he's prepared for us something better. Now, notice what the Bible says. They didn't receive what was promised, but having seen and been greeted from afar and have, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who they spoke about these things, if they had been thinking of a land from which they had come, they could have returned. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed. So he's not ashamed. The fact that he's not ashamed is predicated on what comes before which is that he's prepared for them a city. He's not ashamed to call them for them to, to be called their, for him to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Hmm. The joy of God in being our God is rooted first in something that he has done for us, not vice versa. Now this is an earth-shattering reality. Because what it means is it means that the basis for God's joy, the establishment of Him not being ashamed that, we be that, that He would be our God, is not based on what we've done, but on what He's done. So what that means is, is that instead of God being up in heaven the way people picture Him, for whatever reason, I don't know. As if he's this distant deist God up in the heaven somewhere looking down at old struggling you and me and he's going, come on, you can do it. Go get him, tiger. Hmm. That's obnoxious. You know what God's saying when he looks down? Well, first of all, he's not looking down. He's with you. But he's not saying, hey, come on, go get them. You can do it. He's not cheering. Rah, rah, go you, go you. You know what he's doing? He's saying, hey, go me. Look at what I did for you. Hey, you need to keep going because if you noticed what I did for you, have you seen what I did for you? Have you read about what I did for you? Have you experienced what I did for you? Do you realize what I have done for you in light of what I have done for you? Last time I checked, my one and only son died on a cross for you. Hey, come on. You can do this. You know why? Because look at what Jesus did. The cheering is not about what we're doing. It's about what he's done. How can we stop? I want, who's getting tired? Who's weary and ready to quit and take a break? Have you, are you forgetting the magnitude of what God's done on our behalf? That's the way we need to think. We need to hope in a whole new way. No, it's His joy is based and founded in. The reason he's not ashamed is because he prepared a city. 
So when you get tired and weary and you're confused and you're beat down and you're beleaguered and you, you don't know what to do, God's not saying, come on, I know it's in you. Reach way down deep inside and pull it up out of you. That's not what God's saying. God's saying, hey, you know what heaven's like? Do you know what's waiting for you at the end of this race? Do you know where this journey's leading? That's the motivation. Because trust me, if it was the way we commonly think about it, he would be ashamed. He's not ashamed because it's founded in what he's done. It's what he's done. Secondly, it's because we desired something better. See, he did everything, and look at this. We desired something better. They had a desire for a better country. Wow. When was the last time you got commended for desiring something better? Like, normally, normally that's just natural, right? The joy of a life of faith is not because it's easy, but because it leads to something better. That's the whole point of Abraham. That's how Abraham is continually in a struggle. He's continually being challenged. He's, there's at no point where God says, oh, you know what, Abraham? You've come far enough. Man, great job. You killed it. So why don't you just take a break? I'm going to focus on somebody else for a while. No. He loves you too much. It's continually this journey of faith. Day in, day out, day in, day out. Through the ups, through the downs, through the cancer, through the bewilderment, through the bad news, through the, uh, the, the, the abandonment, through all the things. Through it all. Through it all. Desire something better. So here's the principles. First of all, God loves to magnify His work in us, not our work for Him. That's what He magnifies. That's the beauty. Everything beautiful and spectacular and wonderful is Him. He did that. It's Him. It's not us scampering around like a bunch of worker bees. No. It's us joyfully and gladly risking whatever it is, going to whatever it is He's called us to, just seeking to obey Him in everything that we understand, joyfully and gladly, because what are we really risking? The whole New Testament doesn't make any sense apart from this. Jesus is constantly saying, but the worst thing they could do is kill you. Paul is going, well, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, It's all just temporary, right? Once eternity is set and secure, everything else is just temporary. Next, a faithful life wants mercy more than it wants merit. You see? Because the more that I realize the focus is on what God's done and not what I'm doing, the more I'm reminded that, you know what? You know what mercy is? Mercy is my oxygen. Every moment of every day, I have to breathe mercy. If I don't breathe in mercy, I'm going to perish because I need mercy. Because when I look at what God has accomplished on my behalf, when I look at what God has done through Christ for me, there is nothing that I can ever do to live up to that. And so as I just walk in faith and obedience to Him, I'm just breathing in, constantly breathing in mercy. There's at no point where I'm going, hey, God, have you, have you checked out what I'm up to? I mean, have you noticed this? I mean, could I get a little, you know, thumbs up or attaboy? <laughs> no. So may God please open our eyes to live our lives, not for the things of this world, 
but fully desiring all that God has done for us in preparing for us a city, so much so that things we say all the time would literally become a reality, that we might walk by faith and not by sight, which unfortunately something so beautiful and so meaningful has come to be so cliche in a culture that diminishes the awesomeness of what actual genuine faith is. It obeys differently. It lives different. It believes different. I mean, it's different in every way because at the end of the day, it hopes differently. 